Welcome to 27 Speaks, a weekly podcast with the staff of the Express News Group who share their insights into the latest stories making news on the east end of Long Island. 27 Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. Okay, we're recording. All right, everyone. So here we are once again. Um, it's New Year's Eve everywhere in the world. We're probably all tucked in for our long winter's nap, and we're recording this a little bit early. But because we sort of always take the last week of the year off at the paper, we thought this would be a perfect time to talk about the various people of the year that were selected this year for the Express News Group, and that would be the Sag Harbor Express and the Southampton Press editions and the East Hampton Press. So Catherine Manu, publisher, is here, and I would wondering, Catherine, if you would like to speak a little bit about this tradition and um, how it's working this year and what we're up to. Hey, Annette. This is Catherine Manu. I'm sometimes known as Georgie, which you may be hearing people refer to me as throughout the podcast. So yeah, this is actually the first year that the press newspapers will have individual people of the year. This has been a longstanding tradition for the Sag Harbor Express. As Annette mentioned, we like to give everybody a nice solid week off to regroup, refresh before the new year. Lord knows we really need it this year. And as a part of that, we put together a year-end edition a little bit ahead of time, but we've always used it at the Express as a way to honor somebody in the community who has done something significant, meaningful for Sag Harbor. So this is something we've done for decades, and we're continuing that tradition now by expanding that to the press newspapers. Now, instead of just doing one person of the year for the region, we felt like because our newspapers really do aim to speak to their individual communities, that we try to make them specific to those communities. So I'm really excited this year that we get to honor. It's actually going to be five people, and they're all certainly worthy candidates in a year where we had a lot of heroes. So we have a lot to be thankful for. So before we get into that, let's just do our introductions very quickly. So we have Bill Sutton at the controls. Hey, Bill. Hey, Annette. I'm Bill Sutton. I'm the managing editor of the Express News Group. And of course, you just heard from Catherine G. Manu, also known as Georgie, who is co-publisher. My name is Annette Hinkle, and I'm the arts and living editor. And then we also have with us four others who took part in writing the profiles of our people of the year. So we'll start with Michelle Trowering. Hey, Michelle, who did you write about this year? And I wondered if you could tell me a little bit about your subject and which edition it was for. Yeah. Hey, Annette. Um, Michelle here. I'm the features writer for the Express News Group. And this year I wrote about Holly Wheaton, who is the chairperson at the Springs Food Pantry, but she acts as director. She's running that ship uh, big time. It's a completely volunteer run organization. And she really... Uh, just took a horrible situation that we've all been living through this year with COVID and turned it into, you know, a bright spot and a very dark time, uh, keeping that food pantry afloat. So what were some of her biggest challenges and what was it about her that impressed you when you um, spoke with her? Well, speaking with her and also some of the other volunteers at the pantry, it's just became clear that she really led by example this year. She never lost her cool. Uh, and it was truly grace under fire since March. And some of the biggest uh, struggles that she had was just getting the food 
there were so many uh, shortages across the country and the East End was not exempt from that. So she went from last year feeding 55 families, which is about 195 people, to earlier this month feeding 214 families or about 830 people. So that's about a 300% increase in demand in a very small community, which is tremendous. So she's, you know, she's ordering, she used to ordering uh, 20 dozen eggs that inflated to 270 dozen eggs. Sometimes they would arrive broken, you know, and through all of that, she still just kept her cool. Um, in May, she did have some help from the JBJ Soul Kitchen Food Bank, um, which Holly said literally saved them. And so she enlisted some help and used a dump truck to pack up the food from there and bring it to the pantry. And just for the record, that's the John Bon Jovi food pantry, right? Yes. Yes, it is. So they set up shop near the East Hampton Airport, right? At the, um, at the clubhouse, the clubhouse property, right? Yeah. Yeah. So the um, JBJ Soul Kitchen. Is that right, Michelle? JBJ Soul Kitchen Food Bank. Um, opened up earlier this year, actually at the clubhouse, which is in Wainscott, um, like the Springs Food Pantry, um, a hamlet of East Hampton. Great. Okay. And so, and so Michelle's profile will be running in the East Hampton Press because Springs is part of East Hampton, right? Um, so then we also have with us Kaylin Riley. Hey, Kaylin. How are you? Hi. So you wrote your profile for the Western edition of the Southampton Press, is that correct? Yes, I did. Yes. And who's, tell us a little bit about the subject that you wrote about and why you were impressed by this individual. Okay. So I wrote about Brian Timon. He is a West Hampton Beach Village trustee. He, he does so many things. Like he's all over the place and he's incredible. But the thing that he did during the um, start of the pandemic was he heard from um, some people that there were some families in the West Hampton Beach Elementary School that were really in need of some help when it came to food and basic needs. So he figured, you know, what, I'll go on Facebook, I'll start a little fundraiser. I think his original goal was to just like get $500, go to BJ's, get a bunch of stuff to help these families stock up. So he put that out there on Facebook. His wife contacted him, I think, half an hour later and was like, um, you've already exceeded your goal. And before long, he had... I think $10,000 to work with, which is incredible. Um, and he was able, he basically started running like a concierge grocery delivery service for people in the area that needed food. And what was cool about it was that it, it wasn't just for people in need of financial assistance, although it was that for sure. But also I spoke to one person who he helped, he helped out early on, Jim Fogarty, he's a Vietnam war veteran. He needed groceries in April, I think, but he is in his 70s. He was, he was rightfully so afraid to venture to the grocery store. So Brian picked up groceries for him, delivered them at his door, even like gave him some fresh flowers with it. And Jim wanted to pay him. And Brian was like, no, don't worry about it. You don't have to pay. Jim felt like he wanted to because he had the money to do it. And so he said, you know, if you wanna do something, just make a donation. And basically, Brian was going to grocery stores, delivering food for so many people. He also like tried hard to support local businesses too. He went to Justin's Chop Shop. He really didn't want to give people just, you know, canned goods or like bare bones kind of stuff. And he wanted to support people like Justin. 
one thing Justin told me was that Brian didn't even tell him at first necessarily that he was going there for this purpose. So he would wait on the lines. He wasn't like trying to ask for a favor or a handout. Um, Minerva Perez from OLA told me that he helped her greatly. And kind of the thing that stood out to me about Brian was that he didn't just drop these groceries off and then be like, see you later. He wanted to like build relationships with these people. And I think that's just sort of in his nature to do that. So he ended up helping Jim's son who was looking for an apartment in West Hampton. He took him like for a tour around town, helped him find an apartment. The one woman who he delivered groceries to, she was a single mom who had, was cleaning houses, but was out of work. He eventually hired her and told some of his friends about her and now she's got a bunch of new clients. So he didn't really just give people groceries, which would have been impressive enough, but he really like made lasting meaningful relationships with a lot of the people he helped. So that was what really impressed me about him. The other thing that he told me about was that serving the community and helping people is kind of like in his blood. His, his father was the CEO of Big Brothers Big Sisters for many, many years. And when he was a kid, his dad used to take him along to a lot of these events, whether it was meeting people together or delivering something. So that kind of really stuck with him. And he does that with his own do young daughters as well, like tries to bring them with him when he's doing stuff. Because he said he grew up in like a very stable home and it, and it was not something that he really would have been exposed to necessarily. And I think that's true of this area, like unless you sort of are intentional about expanding your horizons when you live out here it's not necessarily in your face that people need help and so it can be sort of easy to think like everyone's fine or well we live in the Hamptons so it's 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 not bad here it's bad in other places a lot of people that need help out here are kind of in the shadows you're surrounded by people with all this wealth that they're flaunting and it might be I don't know it just seems like people don't recognize it as much or when people do need help they sort of feel like they can't be as open about it it's like this place is sort of a cliche and people yeah. you know don't think you know the whole idea of someone being poor and struggling in the hamptons is kind of an oxymoron right. for them but the irony of that is is that it there are so many people who have the means to help so it's it's lucky in a way because there are community members who can maybe more so than in other communities extend that kind of help. And so, you know, it's important that people see the kind of work that people are doing, like Brian, because it makes people aware, like people might want to help. And then, it, I mean, his Facebook's the perfect example. Like, look how quickly he raised so yeah. much money. I also wonder if there's a lot of new people who've come out here and are staying around and maybe they never had that relationship with the area before. Mm -hmm. Like they came in the summer, they left, and they didn't really ever get to understand the depth of Right. the deeper issues here. So mm -hmm. yeah. that's great. Um, so Steve Coates, you're on. I'm Stephen Coates. I'm a reporter with the Sag Harbor Express and Southampton Press, and I guess the East Hampton Press too. Um, and I was asked to write uh, a profile of Deborah O'Brien, who is currently the president of the Sag Harbor Volunteer Ambulance Corps. And anyone who is, has a pulse still realizes that this was the year from hell for volunteers with the ambulance corps um, and with uh, with uh, hospital workers, and it just so happens that that uh, Debbie is also a a nurse at South at Stony Brook Southampton Hospital. She's actually an emergency room charge nurse, 
which is a supervisory position, but she's apparently also hands-on. So for the last year, uh, she has been working her 40-hour-plus shifts at the hospital and then uh, coming home and volunteering for the ambulance where she's, as I said, the president. And uh, she's been a member for 38 years and all but one year, she's either been an officer or a director. But so she would have to come home. Uh, remember last March when this thing was all breaking loose, uh, she was responsible for getting uh, PPE for uh, the, the members of the ambulance corps, which was no easy task, if you remember. Uh, she also uh, was able to convince the village to purchase what's called an aeroclave machine. It's a, it's, a, it's a system to decontaminate an ambulance, which has to be done when you carry a COVID patient. Um, and just basically going, you know, round the clock. Um, and what's interesting, another side note here is that uh, uh, Debbie's grandfather, John Shearn, was a co-founder of the Ambulance Corps back, I believe, in the 40s. And um, all of her, uh, she, she's got one brother and th uh, two sisters. They've all been volunteers over the years. You've lived in Bridgehampton for so long. Is Debbie somebody that you have known before? I've met her over the years with, with the ambulance. She's very much no nonsense. Um, you get her on the phone and, and she'll tell you what you, you need to know, but she, she doesn't volunteer a lot. She's not looking for kudos. She's a, just a real hard worker. She knows her stuff backward and forward. Um, and you know, and I, I can speak personally for this because my wife is an EMT with the Bridgehampton Ambulance Corps and she has she worked around the clock to qualify. And so now you have a woman like Debbie who also teaches classes and, you know, she's just an incredible asset. And so your profile is running in? In the Sag Harbor Express. Did she say anything about like what some of the harrowing situations were? Or was it just, because I know like in the city, I have friends in the city and they just said the ambulance, the sirens were just nonstop in the height of COVID. And I didn't know if it was like that out here for them or what their biggest stress level was with them dealing with this whole pandemic. Well, I, I, think, the, I think the biggest stress level here, you know, in her case, I mean, she's working at the hospital, which was overwhelmed with, with COVID patients earlier in the year, and then would come home and deal with you know, as a volunteer on the ambulance corps with calls that were, were leaning toward COVID type patients. One thing that she told me that was, uh, I found of interest was that ambulances in general, as we all know out here have been got, uh, gotten busier and busier over the years as more and more people live here. This year, she said that they actually, the calls were flat and her concern was that, you know, people you, I've got chest pains or I think I'm having a stroke or whatever, but I'll, have my wife drive me to the hospital because I don't want to get into an ambulance. So you know, her concern is that people who really needed the ambulance were not calling. Um, but, you know, there's still plenty busy. I mean, she did done 700 calls uh, early in December or so. In reading your article, I, I she had, um, she had noted that for, for the volunteers who so selflessly give, give their service, that each call was much longer than it would normally be because they would have to disinfect the ambulance either you know, before and, and after the call. So here you have these volunteers that are going out on, on these calls, um, giving of their own time and, and the time it took to, you know, to get those people to the hospital and back and get the ambulance back in shape was just so much longer than usual. Plus the fact that, yeah, you, you have to decontaminate the ambulance. And 
you know, you have to decontaminate yourself as well. So you, you're all covered in this right. plastic gear, which has to be thrown out and ha- you know, has to be collected properly. Then you have to take a shower or whatever. And then, you know, you never know. You go home and, and um, it doesn't take much to get someone else sick. Yeah. Well, especially at the beginning when nobody really knew every, anything. I remember we, everybody was like frantically wiping down their groceries. Like every quart of milk that came in the house was being wiped down or left outside till everything died on it. Or you were afraid to get your UPS packages, even if it was toilet paper, because you didn't know what was on it. You know, just a little nerve wracking. Yeah, that's got to be pretty scary. So well, good for her. Um, so Brian, now tell us about Brian Boyhan. Tell us who you wrote about. And is your profile also for the Express? Yes, it is. Okay, so we have two two for the Express then, right? Sag Harbor is so chock full of people who are deserving of uh, recognition that the first time that there are co-persons of the year, and I think similar to the fellow that Kaylin wrote about, Cindy Ward-Capalbo, who uh, started a group called Sag Harbor Helpers this year, also, I think, think recognized uh, a need that a lot of seniors in particular we're very nervous about going out during the, the early time of COVID. I mean, even now, they consider the health risks too great, and they wound up being isolated. And Cindy, very early on, recognized that there were some seniors that she knew of, and uh, she quickly learned that there were many more out there, needed help with food, getting food in. Some of them were seniors who were just uh, unable to get out or unwilling to go out. Some of them are also food insecure. And um, I can tell you, I'm on the board of the food pantry here, and there is, to I guess Kaylin's uh, point earlier, that there is a, a large population of food insecure people here. And I think one of the things that um, Cindy wanted to do is to help resolve that. And so she started out, uh, as an example of uh, what a remarkable place Sag Harbor is, not only do we have co-persons of the year, but the response for help was just so remarkable. I spoke with her cousin, uh, Marianne Ward, who said all she did really was she came up with this idea and she said, I, I, I think I can help. And she put, up, put out a Facebook post and she immediately got a response. Uh, people contacting her, both willing to help uh, anything that they needed, cook meals, cook dinners, cook desserts, or say, I know a couple of people that probably should be looked in on. And Cindy would then make contact with them, introduce herself. And at the height of the pandemic, they were probably putting out, they would do it three nights a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, full dinners for for at least 40, sometimes 50 people, uh, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday night. And they would put enough food in there so that the person who was receiving it could get two meals out of it, sometimes three meals out of it. So they were, I mean, it was really plentiful. And one of the points she makes is that the food was certainly part of it. But what the pandemic has created is this widespread isolation. And the six or seven of us deal with it in our own ways. We have our Zoom meetings. We get to see people once in a while. We have families. Many of these people that she's taken care of have nobody. And there is this isolation. There is this, there's no longer the sociability. You figure a lot of these people, you know, the highlight of their day may have been going to the post office and seeing people, seeing some friends. 
They can't even do that any longer. So to have that telephone conversation and to have somebody come to the door with a couple of dinners was just a, extremely rewarding for them. And I guess she, saw, she felt that the, the food pantry, while it does good work, was just not able to really serve these people like the way that they needed it and that they were probably afraid to venture out of the house, right? That's true. Yes. It's a, it's a different niche. You know, these are people who were actually getting dinners prepared for them. And like you said, they were very nervous about going out. At the food pantry, we are probably double the number of people that are coming to see us than there were, you know, a year or so ago. We've got people who've lost their jobs and there's a lot more food insecurity. And the name of um, Cindy's group is Sag Harbor Helpers, right? Sag Harbor Helpers. And so... <laughs> Uh, like Steve's, like uh, did, uh, Debbie O'Brien, Cindy was loath to accept any kind of credit or any kind of acknowledgement uh -oh. for this. Uh, she actually got, we, we, as, as you all know, this is intended to be a secret and a surprise for everybody. Well, Cindy found out about it. Uh-oh. Oh, no. Uh, I got an email, and I got an email from her saying, I'm sorry. I can't accept this. And I'm going, oh my God. Uh, she said, I will, not, I will not accept this unless it is called, you know, the persons of the year and the recipient is Sag Harbor Helpers. Right. And I had to write a letter to her explaining, well, that's not exactly how this works. And, you know, frankly, it's your peers who are recognizing you for this. And Who told her? <laughs> yeah, let's not reveal. I, 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 won't, I won't rat that person out. Um, <laughs> Uh, but it was it, it was clearly misunderstanding or a jubilant. Uh, they thought that she knew about it, I guess. Yeah, um, but in any event, um, she. Uh, I wrote a letter explaining to her that uh, um, you know clearly, and I think in the story it makes it clear that really the force behind all this, uh, the doers are the volunteers uh, of Sag Harbor Helpers, and there's probably about three dozen regular, this is the thing that's amazing, is that there are that many people in Stag Harbor who are willing to you know, give up their time. I spoke with her husband at one point, and here Cindy comes back, she's got a job, she's got a career, and, she, and then she's uh, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, she's in the kitchen, working away, making dinners, and uh, people are coming by, dropping off desserts, dropping off chickens, or whatever it happens to be, and they're putting it all together, and you know, 40, 50 dinners a night, when I spoke to them, it was, I think, two days after Thanksgiving, and they had just done 50 Thanksgiving dinners, and they're getting ready to do Christmas dinner as we speak. It'll be after by the time you folks out there in the podcast world are listening to this, but they're expecting an even greater number for, uh, for their Christmas dinners. Local support comes from the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. In these trying times, working full-time for their clients and the public interest, providing strong advocacy and attentive counsel, be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com All of these organizations, even with the vaccine in sight, do they see that they'll not have this need in a while? Like, when does this end? You know, does, is this, this, these organizations, I guess, are going to keep going on for the foreseeable future? Well, I think as long as there's a need, you know, and um, 
I'll, I can't say enough about the people of Sag Harbor and what their willingness to stand up and help. And clearly talking to, you know, hearing uh, Michelle and Kaylin talk about uh, uh, the people who have stepped up that they've written about. Um, I, I think as long as there is a need, there will be somebody, please God, to fill it. Right. Yeah, and and to, yeah. to your point, Brian, I mean, her, her reluctance, I think, is indicative of of everybody that that's being honored this year that that they're not doing it for um recognition they're not doing it to be you know to to be the heroes they're doing it to fulfill a need and they're doing it because they have that there's that part of them that that just needs to to step up and and help their neighbors i think it's so wonderful that's right yeah god bless them yeah so the last person of the year that we're speaking about is the one that I wrote about, and it's Robert Schalliner, who is the chief administrative officer at Stony Brook Southampton Hospital. And um, Bob is a pretty amazing soul. I don't know if any of you have had a chance to get to know him a little bit, but he is just very thoughtful and incredibly aware and thankful that he's found Southampton and the way that the community has reacted. He came out here in 2006, I believe, from the city where he worked at Cabrini Medical Center, which was a hospital on the Lower East Side that served the, the community that had no money. He's like, they were the last stop for healthcare options. And I think that says a lot about Bob's character and that that's where he chose to really put his energy. And he said it was probably one of the jobs that he loved the most. He was there for five years and it took 10 years of his life, he said. Just like um, people here, you know, some people live paycheck to paycheck. He's like, that hospital was living Medicare check to Medicare check to the point where there were a couple times where it got very dicey, waiting for the Medicare checks to come in so that they could make payroll. So that kind of thing is what he had dealt with. So when he first came out to Southampton, he didn't really know much about the area and he thought it was incredibly beautiful. There was a really funny story he told me that I did not put in my story, but the fact when he first got out here, he was looking in the Southampton press for places to live and he saw um, houses for like $500,000, $600,000. He's like, wow, I could have an ocean house. And then his um, partner, Oscar, who is now his husband, Oscar Mando, said, uh, Bob, what do you think the... Um, MD to LD means. And Bob's like, I don't know. What does that mean? He's like, that's Memorial Day to Labor Day. He's like, this is $500,000 for a rental. Uh, so, so yeah. So Bob was like, oh, but the funny thing was that that was such a great illustration of the issues that the hospital faced in that um, the hospital, when he joined it, had had a lot of financial problems and had very difficult time hanging on to primary care physicians in particular, because they were all cashing out because it was such an expensive place to live. So the recruiting was like his number one problem. So he really attacked that by basically building up the uh, meeting, meeting house lane medical center and starting a residency program where basically they became the employer, the hospital became the employer instead of expecting doctors to come out and form their own private practice. So that was just the first step in a really long journey um, to get that hospital on solid footing. And I think he's done an amazing job. But he said that the thing that really makes his job is the community and that the number of volunteers who really wanted to have a, a world-class hospital out here jumped in to help him. And there was a lot of anger toward that hospital prior to his arrival because there were financial issues and, and um, um, chief executive who would come and go and, and just the hospital had not had the best relationship with the community. So um, that's been built up and, and he really credits a lot of the community partners for doing that, you know, for the breast health center that Ellen Hermanson set up, they set up that and then the Ed and Phyllis Davis wellness center that they have. 
Philip Cancer Center open. Yes. Um, open this year or late last year? I think it might have been late last year. But one of the things we figured out, which is really interesting, is that you don't think about the hospital functioning like the rest of the businesses do out here, but it does, and that it was incredibly busy in the summer and that it was struggling to get through the winter. And they hoped that they had enough business in the summer to carry them through the winter, which was a really scary model. So then another one of their ideas was to really create like radiology services and blood test services and all the things that you used to have to drive 50 miles to get to have that, that kind of thing out here. So that's been a real shot in the arm, so to speak, for the hospital. But of course, with COVID this year, he said was the most you know stressful, but also the most rewarding. And his big fear was in the beginning when they didn't really know anything about this disease. They didn't know that it affected older people more than younger people. And he would have to ask his staff to come in and work with patients who were contagious with this disease. And he was really terrified that they would maybe contract the disease um, and die from this by just coming into work. Fortunately, nothing like that happened. And to the credit of the employees, none of them refused to come into work because of it. So he saw, you know, lots of very heroic things of nurses holding cell phones to dying patients' ears and the whole staff just, you know, gathering around afterwards to support them. And so he's he's really, um, really well-deserved guy and a well-deserved year, I think. So... And, you know, I think it's so interesting, you know, we talk about all of these people, um, our people of the year, and the conversation is always going back to this incredible support system behind them, right? And, and the communities that rally behind these organizations and um, the volunteers and, you know, how really it's a communal effort in all of these cases, um, you know, all of us coming together. And of course this year we needed to do that more than we've ever needed to do that. And I think that the South Fork has really stepped up to the plate. Yep. And let's hope that 2021 is not exactly a repeat of what we've just gone through. Annette from the Bob Challoner story. Can you tell the Mother Cabrini story? Yeah. So Mother Cabrini, I don't know if you guys know who Mother Cabrini was, but she was actually the first American saint. And she, um, I think she was an Italian immigrant, came over to the U.S. So she really started a lot of hospitals. That was her big thing. And she she literally started the hospital, Cabrini Medical Center, that Bob worked at. Um, It was started in like 1896 or something like that. So she was definitely, you know, the patron saint of that hospital. And Bob kept a photograph of Mother Cabrini in his office. And um, like I said, they, they operated from Medicare check to Medicare check, and they would basically get the Medicare check and then they would release payroll. And that was how they made their payroll. So one day his Bob CFO comes in and says, Bob, I have, we have a problem. The Medicare check for some reason didn't come through. And Bob's like, well, that's all right. We'll just have to hold payroll. And he's like, no, Bob, you don't understand. Like payroll's already been released and there's like absolutely no money in the, in the bank. And he's like, uh, really? He's like, yeah. And worse than that, it's a crime to release payroll without having the money in the bank for the taxes. Bob was like, oh, he's like, I got to go into a meeting right now. So well, I'll tell you what, when that meeting's over, you and I will sit down and we'll figure out what we're going to do. So Bob said, as he was walking out of his office, he looked at that picture of Mother Cabrini and he shook his finger at her. And he said, if you're ever going to do anything about this, you're going to do it now. And like yelled at poor Mother Cabrini's picture and went into, his, into the meeting. And he said, not 10 minutes later, the CFO came and got him out of the meeting and said, Bob, I don't know. I don't know what happened, but the bank thinks that they made some sort of a mistake in our bank account and they're floating us a huge amount of money until next week, until they figure out what went wrong. And, and that saved them. Like nobody went to jail and the payroll was covered. And Bob said, uh, 
you know, he's like, I'm an Episcopalian, but I almost became a Catholic that day um, because of Mother Cabrini. And he said he, he caught up with this little Italian nun that that was at the hospital. She was one of the nuns that, that worked there. And he said, sister, I have to tell you this story about what just happened. And he told her the story. And she's like, of course. And then she walked away. And he's like, wait, you have to give me more than that. What do you mean, of course? And she's like, well, well you didn't realize it. But when you were yelling at her and shaking your finger, you were praying. And you weren't praying for yourself. You were praying for the hospital. And that's why it worked. And um, so that was the that was the story of how, how Mother Cabrini saved the hospital. And when he left that job, they actually... Um, the nuns gave him a little um, relic of Mother uh, Cabrini, and it was a piece of the shroud in which she was buried. Wow. So um, Bob found out later that Mother Cabrini is is the patron saint of hospital administrators. So he said as long as um, he will be working at a hospital, he will always have a picture of Mother Cabrini in his office. And, I'm, and I asked him, I'm like, have you ever had to shake your finger at her again? And he's like, no, I have not had to do it since that day. So Terrific. that's the story of <laughs> Bob and Mother Cabrini. Isn't that interesting? Kind of a fun story. Right? So there you go. So I guess coming to Southampton and finding $500,000 rentals is a little bit, <laughs> little bit of a different scenario. But it is weird. I mean, I think that's the thing that we were talking about is this community is so bizarre like that in that you have, you know, a $500,000 rental and then people that don't have enough food to like make it to next week. Right? No, I was just gonna say that he discussed that at all the notion of how You've got this hospital in Southampton, and yet the people it serves are, by and large, poor. I mean, they're not. Yes. That was one of the first things he said. I said, did you understand when you came out here that, that this community, what you saw in the estate district of Southampton was not what the hospital was? He's like, oh, no, the board made that very clear, that this was a community hospital and what it was dealing with. Um, and I think that's why he took the job. I don't think he would have taken the job had it been a boutique hospital that only served that class, because um, that's really where his heart was, was working with communities that um, were on the edge and for which you were really the last resort in many ways, you know? He must have a lot of interesting conversations with people when, like, people who must be like, oh, so you like at this hospital in Hamptons now, right. huh? And the hospital itself is literally nestled in between multi-million dollar homes. Yeah. And, and let's be honest. I mean, most of the time, from what I remember, is that anybody that had a serious amount of money would put off like going to the hospital until they were back in the city. You know, they wouldn't get their big, you know, procedures done out here. They would wait until they were back in their Manhattan apartments or whatever. And and use the medical services in the city more than out here. So I think that's the other thing is that, you know, they're really working to build up the reputation of the hospital out here. So, you know, with the new cancer center and the breast health center and all these other um, places that they have out here. And they're, they're building a, a new emergency room center in East Hampton because as everybody who lives in East Hampton knows, it's a really long way to Southampton yes. hospital, especially like bad traffic. So that should be um, really helpful. And, you know, Bob said he wants to finish his career here and he wants to retire out here and he wants to make sure that there's, you know, good medical care for himself and his friends. So we're all going to be covered. I think the flip side of the, uh, <clears throat> you know, the, uh, this dichotomy of population, you know, the very, uh, very wealthy and then the not so wealthy. Uh, the flip side is that uh, it's a very, I, I find it to be a very generous population. And uh, we're rich not only in volunteers, uh, if you just look at Sag Harbor, all the different organizations, you've got the, the municipal boards, the library boards, the whaling museum, all of these require volunteers to step up and take positions. 
in addition to that, uh, it takes an awful lot of money to run the organizations that we have out here. And you look at, um, at the arts organizations, you can support Guild Hall, you can support the Parish Art Museum, Bay Street Theater. Uh, now you have the Sag Harbor Cinema and you have the church and any number of these other organizations, not to mention the, uh, uh, the social organizations, the food pantries. Uh, we are very, very lucky to live where we are. I'm gonna couch that with the fact that it's, what, it's stupidly expensive to live out here. Uh, but for those organizations that need the help, um, it seems to me that the help is, is, for the most part, is there. Even if you look at the Springs Food Pantry, that was something that was started by Holly's mother. And so when Holly came on board in the late 1990s, she told her mom, hey, listen, our demand is superseding what we can get knocking door to door. So we need to start buying food. And her mom said, I don't know how we're going to pay for that. And so Holly sent out her first fundraising letter in that moment. And since then, it's been the community that's largely kept that food pantry afloat. I think a lot of people want to give, but they don't know how. And wanting to give and being able to put it in the right place is a challenge. And so that's why like all these yeah. people that we're writing about are so key because it takes a lot of it takes a lot of work to direct the resources to where they need to go and to figure out how to do it. And it takes time too. So, you know, that's why all these people, their work is so valuable because they're they're like, this isn't like a job for them that they're getting paid for or something, but they're putting an enormous amount of time and energy into doing it. I mean, Brian was telling me, you know, he enlisted the help of two friends, but by and large, like he was just constantly grocery shopping, like just going grocery shopping and dropping off groceries at people's houses. And, and that's time consuming. And, you know, he also was willing to put himself at risk to to do that. I mean, that he was doing that at a time when like everyone was afraid to go to the grocery store and he was going there constantly and doing that for people that couldn't go and, and needed the, the food. We're pretty lucky, right? Oh yeah. We are. So what's everybody got planned for New Year's Eve? Doing the right thing and staying <laughs> home with my family. <laughs> Good night's sleep. I always like to start here off on the right foot. I mean, that's been my reality for the past couple of years, sadly. Like, it's not easy to find, even in normal times, some, someone to, like, give up their own New Year's Eve to watch your, like, three wild animals <laughs> and children. When I lived in Chicago, I always felt that, that New Year's Eve was amateur night and St. Patrick's Day was professionals night. And I, I stayed clear of both, you know? I mean... Having been a bartender, I can tell you that, yes, New Year's Eve absolutely is amateur night. Yeah boy all right everybody stay home stay safe and uh get some pots and pans and some backyard fireworks and don't set the neighborhood on fire it's no fine. no fireworks near me because the dogs go crazy uh right i actually bought my wife pots and pans for christmas how romantic of you get her a vacuum too oh boy lucky i like a solid potter pan that i need my collection that's a good gift that's because you like and are good at cooking. Well, here's the deal, is that, is that we had these, she's in the house with these really good pots and pans we got when we were married, and they've, we've kind of worn them out. And I should say she's worn them out because she does 99% of the cooking. But um, 
I got this great, do you know, have any, all clad pots oh, yeah. and pans? Yeah, all clad. Yeah. So, yeah. so you're telling us on yeah. New Year's Eve, she'll be out there yeah. banging them to make noise or else hitting you on the head with them. She'll be banging the old ones. Banging the old ones. Okay, <laughs> don't take the new cloth clad. Well, I have to say, I mean, being from Southern Ohio, there were a couple New Year's Eve, now that I'm thinking back of it, where midnight involved shooting guns in the air, which not being someone that knows anything about guns made me very nervous because... We were in Puerto Rico one year and for New Year's and they were handing out flyers. The cops were handing out flyers all about like, please don't shoot guns. Someone dies every year. It's wow. like a, I guess it's like a thing there to the point where they feel like they have to tell people like, please don't shoot guns. It's a thing in Appalachia for sure. I just don't know. Like if they shoot those things in the air, don't those bullets come down and hit something? They do. That's how people die. Ugh. And they and but it's interesting though, of course, is that they they don't they don't come down at the same velocity that they go out, but a piece of lead falling from a thousand feet. Could do it. Can can put a hole in your uh, all clad. So there you go. All right, I think we've killed enough of our the sun's about down. <laughs> yeah, sun's about down, yeah. I would say, God, I wish we could all just go meet at the American hotel, but um, one day. Yeah. 2021 or two or two no we'll meet again don't know where don't know where we'll meet that's like that's the theme song of uh dr strangelove and the dr strangelove so we thought we had a bad year Twenty Seven Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. Thank you for listening. Join us again next week to hear what's news on the East End. Our interlude flute music is by Allison O'Reilly. Our opening and closing theme music is Boysdale Blues, written and performed by the incomparable Judy Carmichael. Listen to Judy's weekly show, Jazz Inspired, airing on an NPR station near you, or go to jazzinspired.com. 27 Speaks is a weekly podcast produced by the Express News Group, which includes the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, 27east.com, and sagharborexpress.com Find us on the websites or subscribe through Apple Podcasts.